0: everybody, welcome to the What Is Money show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. We are 100% sponsor-based, which means that all the revenues we derive come from sponsorships. But I try to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with. Specifically trying to choose those who have values well aligned to the values expressed on this show, like freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do is a few ad reads right here at the top of the show and then a few ad ad reads in the middle. And I hope you won't skip them. I hope you'll take the time, listen, and see what they have to offer. Because again, these are hand-selected sponsors. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Pacific Bitcoin Conference, brought to you by Swan. Now, this is going to be a two-day event in Los Angeles, November 10th and 11th, 2022. And if you haven't been to a Bitcoin conference yet, I highly recommend it, as there really is no better way to get integrated into the Bitcoin community. Speakers announced so far include Michael Saylor, Lynn Alden, uh, many others. I'll be speaking as well. Uh, Michael Saylor is even quoted as saying, this is going to be the event of the year, so you definitely don't want to miss it. Uh, So go to PacificBitcoin.com and use discount code BREEDLOVE to get your tickets today. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Ledin. Ledin lets you do more with your digital assets. For instance, Ledin offers a B2X loan product that lets you leverage your existing Bitcoin to buy even more Bitcoin. Or you can also get traditional Bitcoin collateralized US dollar loans through Ledin as well. Ledin also offers both Bitcoin and USDC-denominated savings accounts, letting you generate yield on your digital assets. Recently, Ledin has launched a Bitcoin mortgage product as well that lets you use Bitcoin to buy a home or finance one that you already own. So go to ledin.io, that's L-E-D-N.io today to sign up. Mr. Stefan Kinsella, welcome back to the What Is Money show.
1: Thank you. Glad to be here.
0: It's great to have you again. Uh, We're going to continue our journey into Hoppe's A Theory of Socialism and Capitalism. And I'll just read a quick excerpt here from page 22 in the PDF to get us rolling. Hoppe writes, What then is the natural position regarding property implicit in one's natural way of speaking about bodies? Every person has the exclusive right of ownership of his body within the boundaries of its surface. Every person can put his body to those uses that he thinks best for his immediate or long-term, I'm sorry, or long-run interest, well-being, or satisfaction, as long as he does not interfere with another person's rights to control the use of his or her respective body. This ownership of one's body, of one's own body, implies one's right to invite, which is to agree to, Another person's doing something with or to one's own body. My right to do with my body whatever I want, that is, includes the right to ask and let someone else use my body, love it, examine it, inject medicines or drugs into it, change its physical appearance, and even beat, damage, or kill it, if that should be what I like and agree to. So, I, we're kind of continuing this extension of individual self-ownership into this normative structure that we call property. Correct. Um, and I guess the, the key point here is that it's, it's consent, right? We we've touched on this a number of times, but you essentially by, well, how do you, how do you say this? Uh, a natural reality kind of own your own body. And so we're basically taking that principle and then extending it into a normative structure. And then after that, Hoppe kind of explores the consequences of when that normative structure works versus when it doesn't work.
1: Right. So I think what Hans is doing here is he's trying to take you from A to B. So he's saying, look, if we're going to talk about right and wrong, oughts, norms, what the law should be, um, let's talk about the real world first. Like, let's talk about facts. Um, partly he does this because he wants to be careful not to make the error which he sees of going from is to ought, like just for saying like, okay, here's the way things are, therefore it's the way they should be. But it doesn't mean that the way things are are irrelevant. So what he's trying to do is talk about the natural position. So the natural position, and you can think of that as just if you're alone on a desert island, number one, you have the ability to control your body but if you're in society with other people your direct control of your body gives you the practical ability to control it and to give people permission or not to use it something like that right so what he's saying is listen if we have to establish norms let's let's, let's talk about what would happen without norms without norms everyone controls their own body um, and everyone uses their body to move around in the world and to homestead resources that are previously unused. This is what Crusoe would do alone on, on his desert island. right? So he's saying that the natural – and he's, he's being careful here not to say that just because it's natural doesn't necessarily mean that it's the only way or the right way, but it's relevant. So the natural way is the libertarian private property idea that everyone owns their body because they control it. and that gives him the ability or he's – notice he puts ownership in quote marks here because he's talking about practical ability, uh, what we would call possession in in economic terms. Um, So yeah, so he's establishing the natural natural position, and then later on he argues that that's the only one that can survive scrutiny when you're arguing normatively about what laws could be justified.
0: Yeah, that that makes sense, Um, and… I'll read another, so I guess the point there, the natural position is that you have the ability to control your own body, which seems so intuitive and obvious, but I've had people argue against that. Um, And so it would seem logical that, again, if you're alone on the desert island, you alone control your body, that if we create a normative structure for us to engage with one another in a sustainable, useful way, we would need to  … we would need to respect, and acknowledge, and encompass that natural position, essentially.
1: Well, you would you would need to come up with an argument to overcome that. So, so I think, and we can get into this later, maybe. But what Hans argues is that uh, what Hoppe argues is that um, 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 when you make an argument to justify a law that gives you the domination over someone else, right? So, like you're their slave owner, basically. … you have to recognize that you're claiming ownership in your own body on some grounds, and you directly control your own body, and you don't directly control the body of the person you're seeking to dominate. They always directly control it. So you're you're seeking to exert indirect control, which is like the only way to control another person with a will, with the ability to control their body, is to, is to threaten them with some kind of consequence if they don't ab- abide by your commands. That's what – that's the essence of coercion. Coercion means to get someone to do something that you want them to do that they don't want to do by threatening them with a worse consequence. Like so I say I'm going to shoot you if you don't do X. I'm going to whip you if you don't pick that cotton, whatever. Um, So that's coercion. So you're using your indirect control over them to control them by getting them to do something that they can directly control with their body. So what you're implicitly saying is they don't have the right to control their bodies, even though they directly control it. Yet you have the right to control your body as the slave owner, right? Now, why do you have the right to control your body? It must be because of your direct control. But your slave also has the direct control over his body. So, like you, you, you end up with a contradiction. So, I think that's why Hans is laying, uh, Hoppe is laying this, this, uh, this, this, this background down here.
0: Makes sense. So the key aspect here is that it's, it's about control. I mean, we keep using this term property, which is this normative structure. It gets a little bit muddied for some people because that term is used for many other things in the world, but it's about control over bodies and over resources. That's essentially what we're talking about. Who gets to control whose body and what resources. So I'll, I'll read another excerpt here. Hoppe writes, if, on the other hand, an action is performed that uninvitedly invades or changes the physical integrity of another person's body and puts this body to a use that is not to this very person's own liking, this action, according to the natural position regarding property, is called aggression. It would be aggression if a person tried to satisfy his sexual or sadistic desires by raping or beating another person's body without having this person's explicit consent. And it would be aggression as well if a person were physically stopped from performing certain actions with his body, which might not be to someone else's liking, such as wearing pink socks or curly hair, or getting drunk every day, or first sleeping and then philosophizing instead of doing it the other way around. But which, if indeed performed, would not in itself cause a change in the physical integrity of any other person's body. By definition, then, an aggressive act always and necessarily implies that a person, by performing it, increases his or her satisfaction at the expense of a decrease in the satisfaction of another person. That seems to me to be like the key point, you know, this whole idea of consent being that both parties leave every exchange psychically profitable, you know, or at least better off in their own uh, perception of their, their context or situation. But when you remove that element of consent, that's always one party increasing their psychic profit or value, whatever term we want to use here at the expense of another. And so the consequence of that is a, a, a net decrease to the generation of psychological profit.
1: Well, I think that what what Hans is, do, Hoppe is doing here is he's so he's laying down a clear clear definitions. Number one, so he's saying that okay, we can define the natural position. Like, and this this has no necessary normative content yet. Uh, and we can we can make a definition of aggression. And by the way, the word aggression comes from. I mean, the, the standard way we think of aggression is when two people fight each other, like they physically clash over their bodies. Um, as libertarians, we've extended that concept of aggression to uh, disputes over other resources that we own. So, if I walk across your lawn at night when you're sleeping and without your permission, we say that's trespass. And it's a type of aggression, but it's really not aggression in the in the primordial sense um, um, or the prototypical sense of being a physical clash between people's bodies. So typically, aggression means I hit you, right, without provocation. So that's aggression. But that, imp- if you oppose aggression, you think it's wrong or should be avoided, that implies property rights in your body. Like so, the the correlative of that is property ownership. So the natural position Hans is talking about is aggression is the use of someone's naturally controlled body without their permission. Okay, but then he makes a second point near the end of the of the ex- excerpt that you read. He's blending in Austrian insights, primarily Rothbard's. Uh, I didn't check his. Uh, his footnote here, but Rothbard's utility and welfare economics is is what's key here. So this is the Austrian insight that profit – first of all, profit is not just monetary profit, which is one example of profit. But in general, as as an economic phenomenon, profit is um, the achievement of an end of your action that you wanted to achieve. And presumably you get what's called psychic profits or satisfaction out of that. The reason we say that is because the reason you act is because of dissatisfaction or as Mises calls it, uneasiness with your with your vision of the future that's coming that you don't like. Like you you imagine there's some future that's coming that you don't want. You want to intervene in the world to change it. So that's what human action is. Human action is always the attempt to change the future to achieve a different end. An end state of affairs that you will be more satisfied with than what is coming if you don't intervene. Um, so, if you are successful in your action and you get what you wanted, you've achieved what we call psychic profit. And sometimes that psychic profit is um, uh, monetary or catalytic, and sometimes it's not. Um, you know, if my goal is to climb a mountain to see the sunset and to reach the summit, and I do it, I succeeded. I achieved a psychic profit. My action was successful, but I didn't make any monetary um, uh, gain. But that's a subset. Um, so what Hans is pointing out here is that um, what, what what Rothbard points out in that article about utility and warfare economics is that all action is aimed at a, at, a, at a psychic profit, and we and, and so what he calls ex ante and ex post. Ex ante means ahead of time. If you – you're trying to achieve a certain end result, and if you achieve it, then you would call that a profit or a successful action. Um, now, after the fact, you might regret what you've done, but all we can say is before beforehand, if you achieve what you wanted, you've achieved a profit. So you've made the world a better place because at least one person is better off. And because value is always demonstrated in action, right? and you can never not demonstrate a value… You can never have a value that you couldn't demonstrate in in action. Um, uh, When you have coercion involved, then you can never know that the actions are profitable. But if two people are voluntarily engaging in a transaction, we can say ex-ante. They're both better off. So if I trade an apple for your orange, then I believe that if I get the orange, I'll be better off, and you believe if you get the apple, we will be better off. So most Chicago economists would say, oh, it's an equal exchange. The value – the apple and orange must be equal to each other. But the Austrians would say, no, that's not true. To me, the orange is worth more than the apple. That's why I give the apple away. And to you, the apple is worth more than the orange. That's why you give the orange to me. So if we just simply allow voluntary free trade, both parties from an ex-ante point of view are subjectively better off. They both achieve psychic profit. So just by allowing voluntary trade… You increase the net sum of of wealth and value in society, right? Um, but if there's coercion involved, then you don't know that, and in fact, you can assume the opposite is the true. So, so if I coerce you into giving me your apple, you give me the apple because you prefer to give up the apple than to get beaten or, or killed. But it doesn't it doesn't show that you actually uh, the guy that's being attacked is better off. Now, maybe the robber's better off, but since since value is not interpersonally comparable because there's no numbers attached to it, you could never say that an, a coerced exchange or an act of violence between people results in a net, a net wealth benefit to society. But you can say that when everything is voluntary. So what Hans is pointing out here is that when there's aggression, that is, when you violate the borders of someone's property and you coerce them to doing something, um, you're not making them better off. If you were making them better off, you wouldn't have to coerce them. They would do it voluntarily. So his point is there's a dovetailing of the economic idea of value and creation and psychic satisfaction and wealth and prosperity with respecting natural property rights. So that's what he's doing here. He's laying the groundwork for all this.
0: Yeah, so simple, but…
1: So simple, but takes a lot to sort of unpack it if it's not immediately clear. (laughs) That's the problem.
0: Yes, and there seems to be this… I guess human predilection to want to try and control outcomes rather than just letting people be free and consensual. There's some managerial instinct maybe, where that um, people just don't tend to believe this self-organization is possible. But um, I think the reasoning is very sound. Okay. Now he does a good, he does an interesting move here because he keeps going back to this proverbial land of milk and honey, as he calls it. Where he's basically saying we would need a a normative property structure, even if resources were not scarce, that we'd still need something to decide uh, how how we deal with the physical reality of each of our bodies, um, even if, if resources are not scarce. So I'll read this excerpt. Hoppe writes even in the land of milk and honey, people evidently could choose different lifestyles, set different goals for themselves, have different standards as to what kind of personality they want to develop and what achievements to strive for. True, one would need one would not need to work in order to make a living, as there would be a superabundance of everything, but put drastically, one could still choose to become a drunk or a philosopher, which is to say, more technically, one could choose to put one's body to uses that would be more or less immediately rewarding from the point of view of the acting person, or one could put one's body to such uses which would only bear fruit in a more or less distant future. Decisions of the aforementioned type might be called consumption decisions. Decisions, on the other hand, to put one's body to a use that only pays later i.e. choices induced by some reward or satisfaction anticipated in a more or less distant future, requiring the actor to overcome disutility of waiting, since time is scarce, might be called investment decisions. Decisions, that is, to invest in human capital and the capital embodied in one's own physical body. And so, I guess that, I mean, is are those... Two type is is every decision either consumption or investment in that way that you're you're we're either consuming capital or creating? I, think, I capital? think what
1: he yeah, I think what he's doing here is he's engaging in the sort of Kantian Austrian tendency to uh, categorize things by ideal types. Um, also, it dovetails with the subjective idea of value. So, for example, in another essay, maybe in this book, I can't remember this one or the other, but um he – so the Austrians emphasized the fact that value is subjective, which means the the value of a good is determined by the way that actors regard it, Okay, um, and also the character of a good as being classified as producer or investment or consumption good or a capital good or a consumer good… Um, Is dependent upon the way that the actors look at it. So nothing has an intrinsic quality. So, like when people talk about the intrinsic value of an object, nothing has an intrinsic value. People basically value things. So, value should be looked at as a verb, not as a noun. Um, And by the same token, um, uh, you know, if I have a car, my car could be viewed as a consumer good.  … … or as a consumption good. If I enjoy the car, I enjoy driving it. It's a consume, consumption good. It's, it's something I enjoy in the present, and it's like, it's like the sum result of my actions. It was the reason I saved to get a car so I could have a car to drive to have that experience or to drive it. Uh, but if I need the car to go to work to make income for some other end, then it's an intermediate good or a capital good or um, a production good. Um, so I think what Hans is saying here is that… Um, People can – and he's also getting here I, – I assume he's going to get at some point into the time preference idea. The reason that we have <coughs> wealth is because we produce. We can produce because we take inputs and we rearrange them into more useful shapes. But we can do that more and more efficiently in an economic sense uh, if we take a longer time horizon. Right. That is, instead of immediately consuming everything hand-to-mouth as soon as we get it… Some of it we we put aside and we save, we defer consumption into the future, and we use that thing to make a greater quantity of things available in the future, like if you if you instead of picking berries and living off berries and being a nomad, you plant crops and you wait a season or two and then you you reap the harvest there, you have to have a lower and lower time preference, which time preference means the desire to have a, a you know the uh, the concrete results of your actions now. You're willing to put it off into the future. So this is all interlinked together. Um, so when he talks about investment, he's talking about deferring to the future, and he's talking about producing, which means having producer or capital goods. So and, and this is what's happened in human society. Like humans don't don't always live just for the moment. They tend to think about the future and they save some of their output of their current. Uh, labor instead of consuming it now they 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 let it grow for the future somehow like they plant plant a crop they build a farm they have a factory whatever they're willing to defer consumption to the future which allows there to be a greater output in the long run so i think i think that's what he's getting at here
0: it makes sense and it, it's and he's going to get into this but the the credibility of one's control authority over their bodies or over resources they've justly acquired, this is largely determining whether they want to continue to invest or they want to consume, right? Because if if you have the expectation that that your control authority over these resources, which is to say property is going to be violated at some point, well, then you have the incentive to just consume it because you can't, the saving Strategy doesn't work in a world where someone's going to take your stuff basically.
1: Exactly, which yeah. is why for example, a lot of Austrians and others um, point out the insidious effects of inflation on the, the moral character of society and, and, and our, our habits and what we do. If you expect that you know um, anything that I save, … is going to be eroded in purchasing power because the government is inflating the money supply away, then you're going to have an incentive to have a high, higher time preference, which means a lower long-term structure of production, which means lower productivity in the long run. So you change the habits and the character of people, and you impoverish the human race by having inflation right in the first place. Um, Whereas, and and the same thing holds true for property rights in general, right? So if you live in a society where there's marauding hordes of people, and they're, you know, if you plant a crop of tomatoes or you have chickens or goats, um, then they're going to be stolen when you wake up the next morning. Then you wouldn't bother to do that in the first place. So everyone's going to start be, start living a hand-to-mouth existence, which means we're all going to be like living like cavemen from ten thousand years ago, right? So the only reason that we can live better than that is because you can have long-term projects, but you can only have a long-term project if you expect to be able to reap the re- rewards of your current efforts in a distant future, and you can only do that in a stable, civilized society with some respect for property rights and the rule of and the rule of law, and uh, and some kind of uh, some kind of legal order.
0: Yeah, it's really fascinating that we we almost create this normative structure you know, obviously through observation, but it's really just sort of an imagined thing. And then it's our expectation of how much people will adhere to the rules of that game kind of determines the actual level of productivity in the world. It's really fascinating. Um, Okay. So he's going to go through two consequences here. This is kind of a long excerpt, but I think the reasoning is really important. Hoppe writes, But whatever the degree, socialization of ownership always and necessarily so produces two types of effects. The first effect is the economic, in the narrower sense of the term, is a reduction in the amount of investment in human capital as defined above. The natural owner of a body cannot help but make decisions regarding that body as long as he does not commit suicide and decides to stay alive, however restricted his ownership rights might be. But since he can no longer decide on his own, undisturbed by others, to what uses to put his body, the value attached to it by him is now lower. The wanted satisfaction, the psychic income, that is to say, which he can derive from his body by putting it to certain uses, is reduced because the range of options available to him has been limited. But then every action necessarily With every action necessarily implying cost, as explained above, and with a given inclination to overcome cost in exchange for expected rewards or profits, the natural owner is faced with a situation in which the cost of action must be reduced in order to bring them back in line with the reduced expected income. In the Garden of Eden, there is only one way left to do this. By shortening the waiting time, reducing the disutility of waiting, And choosing a course of action that promises earlier returns. Thus, the introduction of aggressively founded ownership leads to a tendency to reduce investment decisions and favors consumption decisions. Put drastically, it leads to a tendency to turn philosophers into drunks. This tendency is permanent and more pronounced when the threat of intervention with the natural owner's rights is permanent. And it is less so to the degree that the threat is restricted to certain times or domains. In any case, though, the rate of investment in human capital is lower than it would be with the right of exclusive control of natural owners over their bodies being untouched and absolute. It is so fascinating to me that changing these incentive structures, I guess, if that's what we want to call them, Actually, results in a shifting of the characterological development of human beings. Yes, it's yes, almost I, I... like we are we are clay in our own hands, or something like that.
1: Yes, and uh, by the way, for people interested in this, um, they should look at Guido Hulsman's books on um, ethics and uh,
0: ethics of money production,
1: ethics of money. And also there's a great article by Paul Cantor who recently died I believe. Uh, he was a great Austrian literary uh, analyst, but he had some article in the Review of Austrian Economics about uh, Thomas Mann and hyperinflation. Just look at that, and you'll see all the amazing influences on the character of civilization, and you can see this if you go to other countries um, where they're always trying to trade money around. And you know, think about hyperinflation in you know, Weimar Germany when people are having wheelbarrows of money. Uh, I was just in Turkey and I saw this first at firsthand. You know, there was a. I went to a museum and there was a a ticket. It was like I don't know, seventy five Turkish lira. But if you there was a sticker on the on the ticket. If you peel the sticker off, it said twenty lira. Like you could obviously they're 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 having to change the prices every couple of months because of this crazy stuff, and it happens in the U.S. too, and like in Western countries too. Even though the inflation is not quite as severe yet here, but you know, you have this tendency of people to uh, go, 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 go now, right? Because life is for the present. Um, you know, you get out of college and you take a, a mortgage out for a big house and all this kind of stuff. I mean, who knows? Society. Uh, my guess is, in society in the future, that was a Bitcoin society, right, <laughs> where we had high time, a uh, low time preference, and uh, no zero inflation. In fact, we had price deflation, which is a good thing, contra the free bankers and the Chicago types. Um, Constantly lo- falling prices. I can't see why people wouldn't just, you know, get out of high school or college and start working, save up money. They rent an apartment for a while, live with their parents. Five years later, you have enough money to buy a house. You just buy a house for cash. Like, I could see the entire industry of lo- loaning and credit disappearing. Like, the character of people, their attitude towards it might might change radically. We don't know for sure. By the way, for the people following along, just to let them know, we're on page 26 and 27 of Hoppe's Theory of Socialism Capitalism, I think the latest edition. right? Yes.
0: Um,
1: but I think Hoppe's point here is that there's always a natural balance between consumption or leisure and labor and investment or, or capital goods, and it's never 100% to, to zero. There's always a balance. … but that when the government intervenes by like not having uh, secure property rights or by actually threatening your property rights, it tends to shift the balance. And when you shift the balance, you always make people worse off just because of the pure Rothbardian utility and welfare economics. Like Whenever you coerce people, you're going to make someone worse off, uh, but also you can see the tendency would be towards making people more high time preference like shortening as he says shortening the waiting time so when you shorten the waiting time because the future is rendered increasingly uncertain like so when the future the future is always uncertain like 10 years from now is always uncertain but when you make it more uncertain than it already is then you make it even less preferable to wait for the results of your hard efforts you know 10 years in the future so you tend to … look for shorter-term profits, which means you have a shorter waiting time, which means you don't have as long of a production cycle, which means you don't have as much efficiency… … which means we don't have as much productivity, which means we don't have as much prosperity, which means we're, we're pushing us back towards the hand-in-mouth existence of primitives. So right. all he's saying is that if property rights are not respected, you have a distortion in the economic uh, allocation of goods and activity. And we're less we're less well off because of it. Um, whereas, if on the other hand, if you have a system of high, widespread respect for property rights, institutional respect for property rights, people will have a, a lower and lower time preference, and will have more and more material prosperity and harmony in society.
0: Yeah, it's it's brilliantly said. It seems like we either engage in kind of this vicious cycle. de-civilization, right? Less and less predictable property, let's say, or we can engage in this virtuous cycle of really strong property, which allows us to create more wealth, which then lets us lower our time preference even more, right? Because the more more bulwark you have against that uncertainty of the future, the more you can engage in long-term economic planning, basically. And so that comes in comes in the form of you could i mean we could look at a when you understand that changes in the money supply are just really violating property right unexpected changes in the money supply are a violation of property then you come to understand the value of something like bitcoin that has an unchangeable money supply versus something like the dollar where we just have no idea we don't even know the supply right now really much less 10 years into the future so what's the punchline there i guess in dealing with this eternally uncertain horizon of the future we need things with maximal certainty to best cope
1: well let, let, let's get something straight here i think um so you said unexpected and expected um so this the the, uh, the the relevance of whether a change in the money supply is expected or unexpected um might have a bearing on um Economics, like um, I think some of the free bankers would say that um, um, as long as you know – or even the Chicago guys, as long as you know what's coming, you can plan around it. And that is true, and it might have a less disruptive effect on the business cycle or on the economy. But whether it's expected or unexpected, it's still a transfer of wealth. It's still a redistribution of wealth. So even if it's totally expected and you know that like every year the Fed is going to print 3%.  … Uh, more of the money supply. It might not cause a business cycle. I don't know. Um, I think it would actually, but it, let's say it doesn't do that. But even if it's expected, you can plan around it, you can ex- you, you can predict the inflation rate and the interest rate because of all this, and you can adjust to that. Uh, it still results in re- the theft. it still results in theft because when the government forces everyone to be part of a, of a legal tender monetary system, Everyone's got to deal with that money. They have to use it to pay their taxes and to, to make purchases. So everyone's using that money, and to the extent that they hold it, its value is always being degraded uh, by the amount of inflation of the state printing new money. So their purchasing power is being eroded, which is a disguised form of of theft. You're, you're basically stealing purchasing purchasing power from these guys. So even if if it's expected, you can't escape. Uh, I mean only if no one ever held money would it not have an effect but if no one ever held money we'd have hyperinflation because money would never sit anywhere right it would be flying around at an infinite velocity right but everyone always holds some amount of cash because you have to to account for the future uncertainty so i just want to point out that whether or not we can predict what the government's going to do with their expansion of the money supply it always 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 results in theft
0: no, that's an excellent point, and that indeed that's the only thing it can do. I guess if people realize that one point, we could. What did Henry Ford say? We'd have a revolution before tomorrow morning.
1: Well, well, if it didn't result in theft, the government wouldn't do it. So, right. I mean, yeah. if if they weren't getting something out of it, then they wouldn't do it. But if right. they're getting something out of it, it's got to come at someone's expense, right? So you can't have both. This is the problem with a lot of political theorizing. People think you could have. You can have both, and they, the reason they think that is because they've been isolated from the natural world, and they, they're they're rich, they're rich socialist, you know, white liberal yuppies or whatever, and they think you can have both. So people say things like, "Well, we can protect property rights, but you, we can also protect positive rights. So you can have your property right in your in your in your normal property and your and in your income and all that, but people have a right to education and and welfare and uh, 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 you know a roof over their heads." But they don't understand that you you can never have a positive right that's that's free. Nothing is free in the world. This is the essence of economics is realizing that it's always about opportunity cost. Every action is always about opportunity cost. Nothing in the world is ever for free and never can be for free. So if someone has a positive right, it has to take away from someone else's negative right. It's just no way around it. So if you have a positive right to a $25,000 tuition to a local university… That money, that wealth, has to come from somewhere. It's got to be taken by inflation, or taxes, or deficit spending, or whatever, from everyone else. Like nothing is for free. And the same thing with money, right? Like so, you can't just say people. Or the same thing with minimum wage. You can't just say, oh, everyone should we should have a free market, but we should have a minimum wage. People should be paid twenty-five dollars an hour. Yeah, but if you do that, you're going to make people be unemployed. There will be a consequence. Right, uh, and if you inflate the money supply, you can't just give money for free to people because they will, they will spend it, and that will cause prices to go up, and everyone else that's holding money will be worse off. Everything you do always has a trade-off, and that's the thing that progressives and socialists and liberals don't want to acknowledge, and so, and and many conservatives, unfortunately. Yeah, it's like uh, – it
0: reminds me of trying to produce a perpetual motion machine or something. You yep. can't. Yep. It's just not possible. There's,
1: And, there's, and that's that monetary – that modern monetary theory is just – modern monetary theory is like the economic version of perpetual motion. Every You can get lots of things for free, right. and they want to take it out of this, this so-called slack in the economy because of market failures that they can fix, which is also a pipe dream and bullshit.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The I mean, it's not, doesn't reconcile with thermodynamics that there's no, no. free lunch in the universe. No. no. And the way I like to commonly break this down is that every right that someone enjoys is someone else's responsibility, right? If you have a right yes. to three hot meals a day, well, then there's some chef that's responsible for preparing yes. those meals. Um, and that does seem to be a point that's lost on people, I guess, due to the ivory tower, isolation i
1: th- I, th- I think they lose the, they lose that because yeah so what you're saying is what the what the legal the legal theorists say there's a uh, every every duty is correlative with a right and vice versa like there's a, always a correlation there's a correlative version of that but i think they lose sight of it because of this intermediary of the government like the government just steps in as this kind of omnipotent force um and you can see this when people say things like um if we abolish the state welfare system can you you know we libertarians say well there would be private charity can you guarantee that private charity would be there and we say well no you can't guarantee it but what they're thinking is that the state can guarantee state welfare but state welfare is not guaranteed either right because social security is going broke <laughs> the government might collapse <laughs> so there won't be social security for these people either so there are no guarantees but Again, because the future is uncertain.
0: Yeah, no guarantees. That's uh, wise words to keep in mind, especially these days. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a Bitcoin-enabled alternative to legacy health insurance. Now let's face it. Legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian Chris Rock.
1: Insurance. You got to have some insurance. You got to. There's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. And I'll give a company some money in case shit happens. Now, if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back?
0: (laughs) So, with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, you can hold part of this pool savings in dollars and in bitcoin through crowdhealth. And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So, go to joincrowdhealth.com/breedlove to learn more or sign up. Now, I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. Wasabi lets you use bitcoin privately while still maintaining full control over your money. Specifically, Wasabi Wallet is an open source, non-custodial wallet with privacy built in by default. By using Wasabi, you're effectively putting the private back in private property. Wasabi Wallet is an easy-to-use privacy wallet that can support any amount of Bitcoin transactions. So, go to wasabiwallet.io today to download this state-of-the-art wallet software. Now, I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Swan Private. Swan Private is a concierge financial services firm based in Los Angeles. Now, I've known the Swan team for years, and these guys are laser focused on the Bitcoin mission. They even have a zero tolerance policy for all shitcoin. Recently, their CEO, Corey Clipston, was instrumental in calling out many of these crypto scams right before they collapsed, saving a lot of people a lot of money in the process. Swan Private focuses on guiding high net worth individuals and businesses on all aspects of Bitcoin strategy, including buying, custodying, and market research. This concierge service provides you direct access to a private advisor by text, phone, or email. So go to swanprivate.com slash today to sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Bitcoin Conference 2023. This is going to be a three-day event held May 18th through 20th, 2023 in Miami, Florida. This is going to be the biggest Bitcoin event of the year, and the past two years in Miami have been simply amazing. Speakers already announced for 2023 include Michael Saylor, Alex Gladstein, Corey Clipston, and many others. Last year, we did a 10 million sats giveaway specifically for this event, and we're going to do it again this year. So to get discounted tickets and enter for a chance to win 10 million sats, go to b.tc conference slash 2023 and use discount code breedlove. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Masterworks. Masterworks gives you access to the fine art market at more affordable price points. They do this by offering you fractional shares in their $500 million portfolio of fine art. Now, fine art is an alternative Asset class, and historically, it's been a great performer and a really good hedge against inflation. Most investors typically hold anywhere from 2 to 10% of their assets in an asset like fine art. To sign up or learn more, go to masterworks.com and use promo code BREEDLOVE. Now, I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CASA. CASA makes it simple to buy and secure your Bitcoin without wondering whether you're doing it right. Specifically, Casa provides a multi-key custody solution, which is by far the most secure way to custody your Bitcoin. Now, when I talk about Bitcoin being theft-proof money or inviolable private property, a multi-key custody model is exactly what I am talking about. Using multiple keys lets you maintain full control of your Bitcoin while also giving you redundancy in case you lose one of the keys. It's also the best way to secure your Bitcoin for inheritance planning purposes. So go to keys.casa, that's C-A-S-A, today to sign up and use discount code BREEDLOVE. Okay, Hoppe goes into uh, a second effect here. Uh, And he writes, the second effect might be called social. The introduction of elements of aggressively founded ownership implies a change in the social structure a change in the composition of society with respect to personality or character types. Abandoning the natural theory of property evidently implies a redistribution of income. The psychic income of persons in their capacity as users of their own body, as persons expressing themselves in this body and deriving satisfaction from doing so, is reduced at the expense of an increase in the psychic income of persons in their capacity as invaders of other people's bodies. It has become relatively more difficult and costly to derive satisfaction from using one's body without invading that of others, and relatively less difficult and costly to gain satisfaction by using other people's bodies for one's own purposes. And he goes on to write, then the redistribution of chances for income acquisition must result in more people using aggression to gain personal satisfaction, and or more people becoming more aggressive, i.e. shifting increasingly from non-aggressive to aggressive roles, and slowly changing their personality as a consequence of this. And this change in the character structure, in the moral composition of society, in turn, leads to another reduction in the level of investment in human capital. I mean, this is just Again, mind-blowing to me that we almost see like the incentive structure that we are inhabiting percolates up through our personality and character right. development processes. And um, I don't know; just a, it's a it's a it's a kind of a paradigm-shifting way to look at the world that we people are always people are often talking about good people versus bad people, but it seems more to me like people. Their goodness or badness is an emergent property of the incentives they inhabit. Yeah,
1: it's a response to the environment in part. Um, I mean, what can you say about this? This passage is so concise, so powerful, it's so hard to argue with. Um, and basically, what it means is that there is a descriptive, factual aspect of the world, the way people actually act, right? That's the natural position. And that if we Recognize that and support it, and um, protect it by law and by by widespread social um, agreement. Then, it supports what we see as the virtuous characters of of man. Right, Um, low time preference, generosity. um, You know, if you're if you're living a hand-to-mouth existence and you're working. You know, 18 hours a day just to stay alive, get enough calories, and that you collapse at the end of the day. There's no time left for contemplation or or the or the arts, you know, or culture. Um, It's an animal-like existence, like our ancestors, no doubt, um, unfortunately, had to to live through. But when we start producing and having profit, right, and and having Then civilization can emerge, and we can live as true human beings, as civilized animals in society with each other. But that's only possible to the extent that there is a widespread social and legal recognition of our rights that allows us to plan for the long term and allows us to start thinking for the future. It allows us to have a surplus of wealth that we can use for leisure time right, and to to treat each other as um, fellow people we can trade with.  … And benefit from in the division of labor, instead of as potential enemies and and you know all fighting for the same scrap of food, um, it all goes together. And so most of us are living on the spoils of the last few hundred years of of the remnants of this sort of organically derived private law civilization, which is being s- systematically eroded by modern democratic welfare states in legislation and taxation and inflation. Um, and we need to be aware of where we came from and what, we're, what, we're, what we stand to lose if we don't protect in an institutionalized, systematic way um, our property rights. It's basically – it's all about property rights, which comes from a uh, respect for each other and respect for property rights, and it's mutually reinforcing. Right, The richer we are… the more willing and tolerant we are of each each other and the more willing we are to respect each other's rights. If everyone is fighting to survive, you might start stealing from your neighbor, but you wouldn't if everyone is rich. We would all be generous to the poor people that are occasionally pop up. So we want to keep moving in in that natural, cosmopolitan, progressive direction that true, a liberal order of trade and commerce and capitalism can produce… And for that, we need Bitcoin. <laughs> Sorry, not to, not to plug Bitcoin, but we need sound money. Sound money is the crew, the, the key to all of this, um, and 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 loose money or fiat money run by the government is a, a basically the the problem of all society nowadays. Because all the problems we point to the the concrete pro- everything the government do- the state does that we think is horrible wars they couldn't do it without control of the money supply, mm-hmm. right? Because they can't tax the people enough to finance it, so they finance it by just printing more money. They mm-hmm. print more money because we don't have a sound money. They've, they've gotten rid of the sound money of gold, and they just print more money. Mm-hmm. So basically once they lose control of the purse and and the money system, um, states' power will be radically curtailed In my view, um, which is one reason – I mean I don't think the achievement of Bitcoin as the world money would, would – result necessarily in anarcho-capitalism but it result it would result in governments that have to live within their budget right and that's a huge that would be a huge curtailment of their activities
0: yeah it's such a net gain for humanity to just you know even if it remained the dominant institution in the world which i don't think that it would on a bitcoin standard to your point, they'd have to live within their means versus just externalizing all these losses onto the productive economy. Um, It is fascinating to me though, that we, this whole thing is kind of like based on trust, right? If we just trust is such a a loose word here based on the belief that others will continue to adhere to the rules of the game, right? Which would be say private property being kind of the rules of the game. But the state, it's such a paradox in that the state sort of maybe didn't need to exist to enforce private property, but we use the state to enforce private property, but it ends up preying on its very foundations over time.
1: Yeah, the, the way I look at it is this. Um, you have to be sort of realistic and separate your aspirations and, and your your activist goals from a realistic uh, analysis of things. Um it it might be possible that some utopia that we're imagining is impossible. However, society is clearly possible because we have it to some degree now. It's not perfect, but we have it because we're we're obviously richer than cavemen, right? I mean, this happens somehow. Um, it's it's like when people criticize money. Like so, this comment you had about uh, trust—like it depends upon trust. It could never be anything else. It could never be anything else because there is no God, and if if there is, he's 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 in the background. Um, In other words, you can never have a society. You can never have a state overlord.  … That comes down and enforces these rules on us and makes us abide by our contracts and li- live like civilized people, because there's no one to watch over that super state, right? It would become a tyrannical or whatever. So like the only way you can ever have society is that if it's organic and it makes sense, it's the only way it's possible. And that seems like an elusive goal, <laughs> but it is possible to a degree, because we have it to a degree. We just don't have it to one hundred percent degree or anything near that. But we have it. More than 0% because we're not living like cavemen, right? So, for society to form, you have to have enough of an, a, a network effect, to put it in crude terms, among people. Like, you have to have enough people with enough natural human empathy and they respect each other's dignity in addition to their own, but they respect their neighbor's dignity and rights <clears throat> enough to overcome the natural. Like narrowly selfish interests that would, have, that would ruin it because of the because of the prisoner's dilemma, basically, right? The prisoner's dilemma would say that, like, basically, everyone's going to always be trying to get as much of their slice of the pie as possible, given this horrible redistributionist democratic welfare state system, and so you just have total chaos, which we have to a degree. But it's not complete because people are not totally without empathy. Yeah, sure, sociopaths and psychopaths and legislators are without empathy, but but not everyone. There's enough of us that have a remnant of human empathy that keep that at bay and keep it from going to zero percent. So, I think what we have to recognize is that we are still in the infancy of of human civilization of what we could be, what we might be someday. Um, Now, libertarian activists are always impatient. And they want to do something in their lives to make liberty happen now, right? Um, and that's fine. I don't think that that's necessarily the way it will proceed or can proceed or that you can do much. We can always You can always do a little in your own little pockets, but uh, if liberty is going to come, it's going to come organically in my view. Uh, same thing with Bitcoin, by the way. I don't think that these Bitcoin promoters… Are going to be the reason Bitcoin succeeds if it succeeds. It will succeed because it, it fills a need when the when the dollar collapses, something like that, right? Um, um, so it will succeed despite or 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 not despite, but uh, notwithstanding the efforts of the promoters. Uh, you're not going to get people. I mean, we we've, we've seen this in the last. … 15, 13 years, all these libertarian – all these Bitcoin activists have gone around trying to persuade mom-and-pop stores to accept Bitcoin as payments. It's always an uphill battle because it's not just natural yet. right? Uh, uh, I mean Uber, you don't have to tell people to use Uber. They use it because it makes sense, right? Uber. So I think we have to wait for Bitcoin to reach its point, point. Um, and the same thing with liberty. Um, so I – what what I'm saying is, I think that we are in a primitive age of of human society. We're not yet; we're still a primitive species. We think that we're advanced and we're beyond the primitive ages because we have spaceships and we've landed on the moon. And we have lasers and computers, but it's just because we're really smart apes. <laughs> but we still believe in you know birds or no, I guess that's a joke. The birds are birds are fake, but you know we still believe in UFOs and we still believe in. Uh, um, 9/11 was a, a hoax, and we believe uh, Trump didn't really lose the election. And we, people believe these crazy things, um, and, and God, and religion, and, and Christianity, and, and, and Islam, and all these things, right? So I think I think we're still in a, a primitive phase of human society. Um, and so, given all these things, it's actually impressive we've come so far. So I just hope we can avoid the gray goo and the nuclear meltdown that might be coming. And escape this primitive growth phase, and uh, somehow reach the stars. But if mm-hmm. we do, and I think we might, it's going to because liberty has a natural impulse of its own. Um, I think it does. I just think we haven't seen it. Just like, just like Bitcoin is not being used every day yet. Someday it will be, right? No. So, fifty years from now, some people are just too impatient to wait.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah, or they're looking. Around but it's the not corner. up to it's
1: not up to them whether they wait or not. It's going to happen when it happens. So if even if they're impatient, they're just going to be frustrated.
0: Yes, I I often echo this sentiment too. When I say, you know, obviously we talk a lot about Bitcoin on this show, but there's nothing that I can do that can hold a candle to Canadian government seizing bank accounts, right? It's, Correct. When there's a real need created for unseizable money, that's what actually drives adoption. Um, I often say, pain is information. Basically, people need to feel the pain of unsound money or government overgrowth Correct. before they start to understand the value of sound money or a check on or, government or, or, overgrowth. Or
1: teachable events, like you know, I think until the Soviet Union fell in the in the, in the, in the late nineties, um, you know, we we Austrian economists had all of our arguments, but people mm-hmm. just ignored them. Mm-hmm. But when it fell. There's a teachable moment. Like the, everyone realized, oh, mm-hmm. central mm-hmm. central command of the economy doesn't work. It doesn't produce the goods. Right. They don't really understand why, but they see that now, right? So that just the collapse of the Soviet Union was a huge teaching moment that none of us could have could have uh, could have equaled.
0: Right, for sure. Um, I have a question. So I've been reading this book. It's called Inventing the Individual. And it's making a point that, and now we can throw out all the theological, we can throw out the historicity even of whether Christ was God or whether he even existed as a human. And we could just say, it's part of the the structure, the mythological substructure of Western civilization, right? The Christ Mm. story. Mm -hmm. And he makes the point or the argument in that book that it's because we have the Christ story at the bottom of Western civilization that we even invented the economic concept of the individual. And so that led to the, the promulgation of private property rights. And then that's obviously what created the the capitalistic success story that the West has been. And you mentioned earlier, you said something that, you know, we have to have you have to have enough critical mass of people with with empathy or respect for one another's rights to sort of bootstrap this, this game of, of capitalism, right. Based on private property. Do you think that religion or, I don't know, mythology, storytelling plays some role in like getting this game off the ground because
1: Um, I mean, how else do we get to private
0: property rights?
1: I'll be honest here. Uh, I, I like to do something that a lot of people that um  … … or thoughtful people that have opinions don't do, and that's like I like to know the limits of what I know, right? So mm-hmm. I don't know, mm-hmm. partly because I am I am only a, a beginner on or an amateur on history, for example. This stuff is a big field, um, so I'm always skeptical of people that claim to have the truth, whatever. Um, like as a as an atheist and as a skeptic and as a modernist and as a cosmopolitan. Um, I'm pretty anti-religion in a sense, like you know, as a as a as a theological thing, um, and anti-Islam and all this stuff. Um, I I yearn for a future future uh, future where um, people are they've set aside these primitive, uh, unscientific views and they're more progressive. Without being lefty, right, Uh, more tolerant, more uh, multicultural, more whatever, but in a humanistic, in a good way, right, in a capitalistic, libertarian way. Um, Now, I am sympathetic to the West as a creature of the West, and I do think that the West has something to do with it. I'm not sure how cause and effect works, right? Um, uh, There's a, I was, I was going to point to you. There's a guy, and your viewers maybe who's interested in this topic. There's a guy named. Roy Casagrande, who has a couple of really good lectures, which I've been fascinated by on YouTube, once called a very brief history of Western civilization. But the other one is called "How Islam Saved the Western Civilization," right? So there's there's a, and he might have something to that second thesis, Mm -hmm. even though Islam, I think, is totally irrational and nowadays is barbaric. um, You know, uh, the history of these things is 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 complex and nuanced. So I don't – what what I think personally about religion is that um, religion is a primitive philosophy. I can understand why primitive humans come up with this, and then it's adopted by the power powerful people as a means of control and to entrench their power and to convey ideas right you know what why does the sun come up because of the sun god it's not a very good explanation but it's it's like a crude explanation right <laughs> why is it going to rain how can we affect that let's do a rain dance you know all these kinds of things um, but over time i think that because people don't have a, an advanced uh, pro, uh, an advanced modern scientific mentality um, their their moral views which … which are mostly sound like don't steal, don't lie, um, you know, don't be profligate in your actions, don't be lazy, you embed these these norms and these morals in your religion because that's the dominant way you spread these ideas. So I think that – and the, that's the way you make religion spread too. It, it's not going to be attractive if it's just full of arbitrary commands. So you have to embed it in it, common sense things people sort of think, so over time… Religion becomes both a a a carrier and a um, a conveyor of 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 norms, right? Now, and so what's the difference between the Christian and the others? I don't know, but the Christian would happen to be the one that became dominant in the last two thousand years, so that's going to, of course, convey uh, you know respect for each other and that kind of stuff, which in the end leads to. A type of property rights and a legal system and and justice and this stuff, which leads inevitably to capitalism. So, I think any civilization of monkeys that evolves uh, is going to tend to stumble across some language that will convey natural principles of justice, right? Whether it's Christian, Islam, or Zoroastrianism or whatever, I think it could have been any of them. My that's my guess. Now, I'm speaking as pretty much a naive on um religious systems and history but that's that's my inclination but that's all i'll say there because yeah
0: yeah i know it's a very uh, the rabbit hole of all rabbit holes um one last general question about it though do you think then there is a natural progression as in uh, uh assuming an ape like ourselves exists on a planet that we develop language that maybe religious I guess religion and then – it's probably spoken tradition, then written tradition, then religion, yeah. then social yeah, institution, yeah. then philosophy. Yeah. Like, Is there a natural progression to these things? Is that how you see it?
1: I do. I, I mean I'm not a uh, – uh, what do you call it? The uh, the, the of your history. I think it's always positive, but I think that to the extent that we achieve civilization and we advance, yeah, we go through different stages, and they're natural. Um, and if we have a chance in the future, it's going to keep progressing with some with some setbacks, no doubt. Um, but um, um, sure, I think the language doesn't matter. It's like it's like if you think of like uh, the way the way Kantians and Aristotelians describe things. I think that they think they're on odds with each other, but they're it's like guys grabbing different parts of the elephant. Like right? they're describing right. the same reality. And if we ever meet a species from outer space, which I think we never will, because I think they don't exist. And they could never get here if they did. <laughs> That's my skeptical uh, view. But if they did, they would have a different language. But if they got here, they would have already mastered certain laws of physics and engineering principles. They would have different language for it, but they'd all be describing the same thing, just like, um, you know, um, different languages, ultimately, people of different languages can talk to each other because interpretation. It's possible. Why is that? It's because the language is the embodiment of a conceptual level and we're all conceptual beings and we can and we're all conceiving and perceiving the same reality. Um, so you have to be kind of a realist to have this kind of a view. So I, I, I think that um, like the concept the Kantian terminology for philosophy and the Aristotelian. They seem different, but they're pointing at the same reality. That's why they dovetail. Consequentialism, utilitarianism on the one hand, and deontological thought for libertarians on the other, they dovetail to the same thing because they're different ways of looking at the same reality, right? So I think that um, ultimately the details are irrelevant. They can affect history for a time, right? And the details, but the broad sweep of things I think would be the same no matter what. I mean, I, I, I happen to kind of think that if christianity had died out as another cult and paganism and romanism had just stayed in place maybe the world would be a better a better and different place now you know but you never you never know but in the end it wouldn't make a difference 10,000 years from now a million years from now would it really matter if we're going to succeed as a species,
0: so right? Yeah, I guess the, this,
1: these are my sci-fi ideas. Yeah, I mean, I don't no. claim to be an expert on them. Everything I said here has a has a caveat or an asterisk going on it. You're okay. in
0: the right place for the sci-fi ideas. So, we, we yeah, like I love sci-fi.
1: Them. I just think we should keep sci-fi distinct from reality. So. Yes. I, you know, I, I, just because I like Star Trek and Star Wars doesn't mean I think that we're warp ten is a meaningful concept, and it's really anything more than fantasy, right. or that we will achieve warp ten. You know, or that's an explanation, or quantum computing really makes sense. Uh, yes. Just because you have a bunch of space cadets and government grantees, and people seeking the Nobel Prize, claiming these crazy things in Omni magazine articles or whatever, you know. Yeah,
0: there is that weird saying though that science fiction tends to precede science fact. Right. That we, we do kind of need some imaginal thing to work towards. Even if we're not going to achieve warp ten, maybe dreaming up warp ten helps us get to warp one or something. Correct. Like that. Of
1: course. Of course. Imagination and motivation. And not only that, uh, there's you know, there's a tendency that the skeptics point out, which is uh, when they debunk all these, you know, uh, psychic powers and these things, you know, there's a tendency of people to be to be bamboozled by charlatans because um, they're not doing a systematic analysis of the claims being made, and the mm. people making the claims—they're—they're they're either good at cold reading, or you're not—you're—you're you're doing what's called counting the hits and not the misses. You see this all the time in private life. People say like, "Oh, um, it's funny how I had a dream last night about this, and it happened the next day." It's like, yeah, but what about the other ten thousand dreams you had with when they didn't happen, and it just didn't occur to you that it didn't happen? Mm-hmm. So, like, the ones that you notice are the ones that happened right and so you give undue influence or importance to them right so pe- people tend to count the hits and not the misses but if you want to do truly scientific analysis of you know statistical correlations you need to count everything and people of course don't do that with especially with anecdotal experiences so they tend to they tend to interpret the world in a mystical way like they'll say well You know, this medal my aunt gave me has a certain significance to me. And when I go to this pond and I remember her, I get this feeling. And so, like, okay, that's fine if you want to format your life that way, but don't, don't delude yourself into thinking that's really the way the world works. You know, you can you can live your life by whatever little things that memories and things that please you. Just like you know, don't think that warp 10. Or warp whatever is a warp drive is possible just because it's in star wars you can enjoy star wars without deluding yourself that it's uh, a future prediction of the world
0: yeah yeah it's a great point uh, um it's funny though but we it seems like we have to well we live in the conceptual spaces as you said due to language right once you're using language we're living in some shared conceptual space so we're living in a story of some kind, some shared story, and that's where the normative structure comes into play. So maybe the an aspect on the process of civilization is just us learning to tell better stories, to live in better stories that are more in harmony with the natural position, maybe as Hoppe puts it, and property yeah. would be one of those stories, right? It's like, look, I everyone owns their body. Yeah. Let's story that. Yeah, that's
1: actually yeah, that's a good way to look at it. I think that we're we're basically refining our stories so that they're less and less um unscientific in a sense, right? Or or more and more rigorous or well defined. We 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 start eliminating illusions and and uh you know, reification is another thing we have to uh, to reification means uh you it's you like some. Yeah, you imbue some tendency you see and you give it a personality or an existence independent. You know, like say, uh, I don't like, like people say things like, oh, well, if you're all, if you're, Kinsella, if you're against intellectual property because property rights only apply to material things, then are you saying only material things exist? And they'll say, what about love? It's like, yeah, but okay. When we say, we have to think about, we have to think about what we're saying. When we say, does love exist or do rights exist? What do we mean by those words? Mm-hmm. so when I say does that chair exist I that that has a certain meaning just because we have a uh, an imprecise language subject to uh, ambiguity doesn't mean that you can use that ambiguity to sh- to prove mystical or nonsensical things right so the chair exists that has a meaning I, you know I'm saying the chair is there as opposed to not being there, right? Like I can sit mm-hmm. on it, right? It's it's not like an imaginary chair, a chair from my memory, or a chair that I dreamed up, or a chair on a piece of paper. It's a chair that's a collection of molecules that actually has a physical effect on the universe in a certain way that lets me sit on it, right? That's affordability, right? I've right. learned that term recently. It's it's got an affordability. The affordability is that it affords you the right, to, the ability to sit on it. But if I say, "Does love exist?" What I'm really saying is, "Does that?" Conceptual categorization of the way humans interact and my explanation using that concept, does it help me explain human interactions? Does it help me understand things? In other words, does the concept have a referent? Is it a valid concept? And I'd say yes, it is, but it doesn't mean love exists in the same sense that chair exists because it's sort of a derivative or a high-level abstract complex phenomena, right? Now, if you say do rights exist, again, if you take it too literally… You become a monist or a, a logical positivist, and you start thinking. Well, I'm asking whether there's a moral fact—a fact in the world that's like a fact, like does a chair exist, or does the sun go around? Does the Earth go around the sun, or whatever? Or does gravity have this 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 quantity? And then you say, well, then the right way to start to determine that is let the scientists decide. We need to do an experiment to determine this fact. Maybe it's a moral fact. So then you become one of these engineers who thinks everything is reduced to. Engineering bullshit, and then they become central planners, and they take over the world, and you know, we have a fascist hellscape. You know, um, But what you really mean when you say does a right exist is what you really mean is can I justify this normative claim? Like can I come up with a good argument when I make this appeal to you that satisfies you that I have a good reason for what I'm saying? It's not the same thing as saying does a chair exist. So again, we just have to be careful with language, and if you're really sincere about truth… And coherence and knowledge and justice and all this stuff don't just try to argue what we call tendentiously, which means like a lawyer, like like I do as a lawyer, like which I try not to do as a libertarian. Like you have a goal in mind and you want to come up with any argument for it, no matter what, and you're going to stick to that position, no matter what. Which is, by the way, what older people do, right? Because they they're stuck in their positions now. They're they're stuck with the like you know if 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 you argue Trump had the election stolen and now you realize it's bullshit. You pretty much are stuck with that claim now. You can't, right. you can't go back on it unless you have a lot of fortitude. You know what I mean? Um, it, be, but if, if you're open-minded and you're really seeking the truth and you're principled and you have integrity and you have confidence in yourself like, hey, I make a mistake on occasion. I can revise my views when the information changes, then that's your pursuit. But if if your pursuit is like to argue this case no matter what, you're arguing like an advocate, like a lawyer in court or tendentiously. You're not really trying to… Get to the truth of things, and I don't know why people would do that. I don't know why you would be involved in this whole endeavor of trying to understand society, sociology, philosophy, economics, political theory, none of which pays a dime to most of us. right? Why would you do this? It's a hobby, and to me, the attraction of the hobby is to understand more about human nature, human society, and reality, the, the world we live in. is to understand the world and to understand truth. It's not to… Argue a position. Um, Now, for rights, it's a little bit different because I do have certain values, and most of my fellow humans and my fellow libertarians, especially, we have certain commonly shared values. We don't want people to run around murdering infants, right? And raping little girls. So I don't want that. That's part of who I am, it's part of my value system. Um, So I'm going to try to come up with technical, technological, and an economic and societal and social and institutional means to stop what I don't like. Just like if I want to feed my family, I might, you know, build, a, you know, build a farm that can feed us, or I might build a fishing net. I can catch fish. It's a means to an end. The means to the end. My end is a world of peace and prosperity, and one way to achieve that is to set up institutions that. help achieve that, and another is to spread the message and to try to persuade people, join my side so that we have more of us than more of the bad guys. Right? Nothing wrong with that. Nothing dishonest about that at all as long as you acknowledge that it's a normative endeavor and you're trying to achieve your ends by allying together with like-minded people. You keep getting me on tangents, Robert, but (laughs) that's another tangent. Sorry. These are
0: really good. What came up for me there was, I think that's the difference between sophistry and philosophy, right? Is that you're either trying to argue a relative point home, like you have a position and you're just trying to win the argument yes. versus like an openness to truth, right? You have to be, in order to learn, you have to always be willing to accept that you could be wrong, obviously, yes, and reevaluate presuppositions and whatnot. And that just to speak to the thing we were talking about, the existence people saying that if you don't believe in intellectual property, you don't think ideas exist or something like that. Right. Right. You're, right. You're never, you've never made that claim. I don't think it's just, it's an understanding of scarce versus non-scarce rivalrous versus non- rivalrous, right? These are just more precise terms rather than just something existing, right? The idea exists in a different way than a chair exists. That's kind of the crux I think of the property. Yes. And
1: in the case of IP, uh, What's crucial to recognize, is something, and look, these are nuanced. So again, everything we're talking about here is so nuanced that you're not going to even follow us here unless you're you're really sincere and serious about ideas. If you're just trying to argue a case, you're just going to blow this off, right? Yeah, yeah. But um. But no. So the thing is, the essence of the reason I keep getting deeper and deeper into the essences of things. So my first revisionist thought on this, I don't know, fifteen years ago, was. Okay. Well, the first thought was like, okay, IP is wrong for A, B, and C reasons. It doesn't fit the scarcity thing, or it doesn't fit the utilitarian, uh, you know, uh, uh, argument that people come up for. It doesn't. It doesn't do what they say it does, right? So, like, kind of the standard. You haven't met your burden of proof. But then the second thing was, like, I classified IP rights as like, if you think about the, what property rights are, they're always rights to control scarce, conflictable resource rivalrous resources in the world and ip rights end up taking those control rights away from you by means of what i call a negative servitude or negative easement okay so that's one fundamentally that's the ultimate problem is that ip rights are just disguised property rights takings okay they're disguised in a complicated way that confuses people that's why they get away with it but ne- but but then if i want to go to a more fundamental level fundamentally the reason so when people say People sometimes paraphrase my argument like Kinsella believes intellectual property doesn't exist. Now, obviously, that's an imprecise way of putting what I think because intellectual property rights and law do exist, and my argument was never that IP rights don't exist. And my argument is not that information or knowledge doesn't exist, and it's (laughs) never that it's not important or it's not part of human action. But it is that uh, it's a fundamentally different type of thing…  … that we conceptualize in the world, and because of its nature, it's not subject to ownership. Now, the reason is because a chair or a car or a stick or a piece of land or a cow or your body, these are things that you could say metaphysically independently exist, like they exist, and they're subject to conflict. Right, Or I would call them conflictable resources. So these are the things that we need to use in the world as scarce resources or scarce means or resources of action or, as I would call them now more precisely, conflictable things that you use in acting and that their nature is that uh, there can be conflict over them. And because there's conflict over them, the only way to use them peacefully and productively in action is if we have rules where people recognize not to use… … the one owned by someone else, so that's why property rules emerge. So the, the fundamental problem with treating information or knowledge as property as ultimately is, is that it's not an independently existing thing. right? It's not a conflictable thing, by which I mean we always interpret – so just as we human beings, there's no value in things. Value is only attributed to things by a human being acting to pursue that that thing showing that they value it by the same token there's no information or meaning in things it's just you know if if you come across a rock in the desert with some patterns etched on it they might be random or maybe they were etched there by someone else from 3000 years ago you know like hieroglyphs from egypt or something so you might interpret that hieroglyph as a pattern Impatterned by an impatterner, so someone trying to signal or send a signal or a sign or a message to you through a medium. The medium was the rock. like They they carved a thing in the rock, but it's always the impatterning of a substrate, I call it, or a carrier, basically a medium, an underlying physical object. So knowledge or information never exists as an independent thing. It's always just the arrangement of, a, of an underlying thing because information can't just exist out there like something you pluck down from the clouds, like a bunch of letters floating around. Letters only are the impatterning – it's like there's no such thing as real circles. You can have a circular shape, but the shape is a real thing. Like if I draw a piece of uh, – I take a pencil and I draw a circle on a piece of paper, I can call that a circle to conceptually de- describe it, but there is no actual circle there. Circle is an abstract geometrical concept I use to understand what I just did, but in reality, there's just a bunch of lead molecules on a piece of paper, and those are all physical things, and someone owns that. I own the paper. I own the pencil. I own the lead granules on the paper. right? So I don't own the circle in addition, and there is no circle. There's a circular shape, but the circular shape is just the way my mind interprets the way that those things are arranged, right? and so… When people say you own information, they're double counting because they're they're saying that you you own your car and you own the way it's shaped. You own your piece of paper and you own the way it's shaped. You don't. It's very similar to the mistake when people say, oh, I have a right to free speech. Yeah, but you already own your body and your home, which gives you the ability to speak inside your home. So if you say you have the right to free speech in addition… … which is really just redundant and just a description of the consequences of having the right to own your body in your home. When you say you have a right to free speech, you reify it, and you make it into an independent thing, and then you come up with people saying, well, if I'm on your property and I want to say what I want to say, you can't stop me because I have a right to free speech after all. They've divorced this conceptual consequence description from its original roots right which is what people do when they say oh there's numbers there's 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 words there's plays there's plots of movies you know there's there's inventions there's designs there's ideas all these things are just useful knowledge that we have which is always stored on a substrate or a carrier or a medium but that medium is just Arranged in a certain way to hold that information that someone else can can or cannot perceive in that way at a future time, but the thing itself is always owned by an owner, Mm -hmm. so you can't double count. You can't say someone owns the information and the thing. I don't own a red Corvette and its red color. If I own a red Corvette, that means no one can drive my red Corvette without my permission, and I'm getting a purple Porsche next month, so I should know. (laughs) it's funny
0: funny you said double counting there yeah because the thing that was coming up for me was that essentially with ideas is that they suffer from the double spend problem yes if i say something to you i've maintained a copy of whatever i said i have a i have the knowledge and i gave you the knowledge so yes that's why i brought up the
1: inflation that's why i brought up the inflation thing earlier you can't inflate money and just benefit the guy getting it, and make new wealth without hurting anyone else. It, right. it always comes at the expense of someone else. So you're double you're double counting the money in a sense. Or if you say, well, people have oh they have negative rights, but they have positive rights too. It's like okay, so you have a negative right to your property, but everyone else has positive rights to uh, I don't know free college education. It's mm-hmm. like yeah, but their free college education comes at the expense of my house because I've got to pay property taxes now. To fund your college education, like mm-hmm. it's no, nothing is free. This is maybe this is the essence of libertarianism. Nothing is free, right? Which comes to art, to economics, right? nothing is free. Well, this double life.
0: counting, this double counting though, this is by definition illusory, right? When you're double counting, you're representing as if two things can coexist that simply yes, cannot. Yes. So yes. it seems like a clear pathway to self-deception and bullshitting.
1: And th- and by the way, this is one of the arguments made by the uh, the hardcore the Rothbardians in when they had this debate about uh, fractional reserve banking, which I'm a little bit on the other side of, but it's a nuanced thing which we don't have time to get into. But so like Hoppa and these other guys, they argued that you know one problem among many of fractional reserve banking, even fractional reserve free banking in a private system, is that you're double counting. You have what they call double dual titles to property which results in, in monetary inflation in a sense and and they thought it leads ineluctably to fraud. Um now I think they're slightly wrong about that because um it's not double counting if every aspect of the interaction is consensual, right? right. So if if a bank customer deposits money into a bank and he is told that the the money he's lending, it will be loaned out. Then he can't later play stupid and dumb American and say, oh, I didn't know you were going to loan it out. I thought I had it. It's like, well… How do you think you're making interest, dude? I mean you're making interest because the bank is rehypothecating it. right? They're loaning it out. So I don't feel too sorry for that guy. I don't think it's fraud necessarily. So I'm, I'm a little skeptical of the double title thing, but the, the, the essence of the idea is there, and usually there's actually not adequate disclosure. So I think it is tantamount to fraud because bank customers do think they have their money in the bank because there is FDIC insurance that says, oh, you put 100000 in the bank, you get… Yeah, what do you get now? Point oh oh two percent interest, but you used to get three 2- percent interest or whatever. <laughs> How do you think you're getting interest? I don't know, but the FDIC guarantees my deposit, so it's still quote there. So yeah, the government has messed all that up. Anyway, but yeah, you're right. There's there's a key there's a key mistake people make all the time about this double counting, and it can lead to. It can, look, there's no there's nothing wrong with over. Uh, … overdetermination if you're aware of it. Like you can have multiple causes of a thing. You can describe things with multiple different uh, directions to understand it. But don't make the mistake of treating them as independently existing, like reification. Like don't don't make that mistake. My yeah. final lesson to everyone, don't make the mistake of reification. <laughs> That's a great point. And don't be, don't be tendentious.
0: So to try to just put a button on, I guess, a little bit of our – the end of our conversation here… We need more useful stories to live inside of normative structures. I've also called these symbolic structures. I don't know. There's just something that we're creating in this conceptual space that we inhabit together. The better stories seem to be related to precision of terms, but we have to be a little bit careful that we also have to understand all terms as provisional at the same time. There's never some final precision with a term that, you know, as much as we may try, all of this language is just provisional to its purpose, something like that.
1: I I like that. I agree. With, I agree with that uh, provisionally.
0: <laughs> Great place <laughs> to end it, Stefan. This was brilliant as always. Thank you again.
1: Thanks, Robert.